1: all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Aloha from Oahu this week. It's Monday, and that means it's time for another episode of Ranching Reboot. I might be on vacation, but the podcast goes on. I haven't been able to connect with anybody on the island to do a podcast with yet, but we still have a few more days here as I finalize production on this episode, which is, let's just say, a little bit different. More on that later. This episode of Land Trust. Trust. This episode of Ranching Reboot is sponsored by Land Trust. Look, I know a lot of y'all are already getting good money for deer leases and whatnot, but for those of us that aren't and would like to concessionize a few more things on the ranch or farm, Land Trust can get it listed and advertised for you. We've checked out farmers markets here, and a lot of people are asking vendors if they could go tour the farm. Guys, the public is hungry to reconnect with agriculture, so go to landtrust.com/reboot today, or click the link in the show notes to get started. That's www.landtrust.com slash reboot. Something else on my mind as I go to finish up this episode is the wildfire situation in the Texas Panhandle. As many of you know, it was just a little under eight years ago when Anderson Creek wildfire ripped through my part of the world, and I'm sure this number will get adjusted as time goes on, but the current estimate for the Smokehouse Creek fire is just over a million acres. Guys, in the coming days and weeks, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to get done. When my ranch got burned up, A lot of good-hearted people came together, and people coming together to help strangers is the biggest thing to help me get whole again. Hay and fencing supplies were already headed to the panhandle before the fires were out. That's just how the Rancher Navy rolls. And if you're still looking for ways to help or contribute, the thing that will help the most in the next couple of months is to donate your time. Money won't put posts in the ground, and prayers don't string wire without willing hands to do the work. One of the best gifts you can give is your time. All right, so for today's episode, i did something of an experiment i packed up my new camera and a mic. situation just took a little trip about an hour away to the northwest to visit a friend that i've known for several years that never took the time to visit until now honestly i can't really remember what we talked about i left all my notes at home and i'm also having some issues with editing software i did the best i could with the audio it is what it is my guest today is lance feikert so join us how we talk Join us as we talk about how his farm, how he got it, and how he's involving the next generation.
0: Now, I remember, this is the only thing I can remember, is they did a Zoom, and I think it was out on my front porch. And I can't remember if it was for no telling planes or something. It was it was something, and you were on it, and I. Took a picture of like the cedars, and you're like, Lance, I see you got cedars out there, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but they've been here before we built this house, Brian. I understand, but there are there are blocks,
1: <laughs> so sounds like a comment I might make. But, um, so I already hit the record button on there okay. when you started that story, so okay. maybe that'll make it in the podcast. So uh, for those of you out there in podcast land, I'm sitting here with Lance Feikert. we're about halfway between.
0: Where are we? Probably, I'd say between Buckland and Fort, Kansas. Okay. We're about 20, 25 miles south of Dodge City. Okay. Um, how long have you and your family been here? Uh, so we, where my mom's side has been here since uh, um, 1884 actually. So wow. we're right at 100 almost 40 years this year. Um, so it's uh, the, the burger side is, uh, so my mother, so I'm the fifth generation that's been on on the ground, uh, raising the sixth generation. So, we're we're just starting to get going.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so, how long have you been? When did you start farming? What, what's your story like?
0: Yeah, my story. Uh, so, <clears throat> basically, when I was probably 12 years old or so, probably started driving tractor, helping dad uh, and grandpa, and we started. I just knew this is probably what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a farmer. I could. I think my parents knew it. Um, and so, anytime, instead of playing summer sports or anything like that, I'd I like baseball, but uh, I'd rather drive a tractor and make some money, and I enjoyed that. So, about 12 years old, I was driving combine or tractor. And then uh, when I uh, graduated high school, and uh, didn't know where I wanted to go. I, I knew I wanted to probably go to college, just didn't know where. And uh, Dodd City, Dodd City Juco offered a scholarship. <coughs> uh, we were down at Buckland. Going through some of these, you know, the the college people coming down in Dodd City said, Well, we'll give you a $1,000 scholarship if you uh, either come up and do livestock judging or soil judging. And so I asked them, I said, Well, what's livestock judging entail? And they said, Well, the first semester you've got five or six competitions to go to, and then in the summer, in the springtime, you'll go probably seven or eight competitions. And I said, Okay. And I wasn't really interested in livestock. We've had cattle and stuff, and that's about it. And I said, What's soil judging? They said, Well, First semester is nothing. In the second semester, you'll have five or six meetings and then you'll go to one competition. Well, that sounds easy. And I said, for a thousand <laughs> bucks each. And so I said, well, I'll do soil judging. So a buddy of mine, both we were uh, living in Buckland, living with our parents and driving back and forth to Dodge. And so that's what, and uh, we went to JUCO and only one class really kind of was any tougher than what high school was for me and so uh, we went up to Juca for one year and then uh, after that I decided to go to Fort Hayes and then a majored in agronomy went up to Hayes and I found out that uh, that was college it wasn't glorified high school it wasn't <laughs> Hayes is a college town in <laughs> Hayes is a college town and when I did my first couple tests there I was uh, I was hurt I was swimming uphill after that because uh, I had to I think my first two tests that I did I thought this is gonna be easy I got D's on them and I'm like oh shit <laughs> here here we go and so from then on I started working and so we went through with uh, I got we had the high school credits so I, I had to, to dodge I got one year up there and basically I was a junior but I stayed in the dorms up at Hayes and that's where I met a lot of I was kind of in between where I met a lot of good friends that were a year younger than me, but I was in classes with guys that were a year or two older than me right. because of the way it worked out. And so I met the friends I have now, a lot of them were from college, either in the dorms or something like that where we met. And uh, so I went up there for two years, two and a half years, I guess, and uh, finished uh, half, a, uh, half a semester earlier than what I probably normally should have. And uh, the year before I started, um, Crop consulting with a guy local here in town or in the area. What year were you in Hayes? When were you so in Hayes? In Hayes, I was, so I graduated in high school in '93, went up uh, to Dodge '93, uh, '94, and then so it would have been Hayes, uh, '90 uh, fall of '94 through the fall of '96. I just missed you. It was probably. I, I went to high school in Hayes. I
1: didn't, okay. go, to, didn't go to Fort Hayes, but okay. I just missed you. And I, I was there for uh, the 95, 96, and
0: 96, 97 yep. school years. So then that, then that was also when Hayes was uh, pretty fun to be at with basketball, too, when they went out and feed it and, and, uh, I just remember taco shop delivery. <laughs> <laughs> I think ours was Lomato's, the pizza place. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? The cheap pizza? That was... Yeah, Lotto's the cheap pizza, Domino's if you felt bougie. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of that's kind of what we we lived on and you know when when, I went, when we were in the dorms, they had the Taco Taco Bell downstairs in the dorms and I haven't eaten Taco Bell since then. And it's probably probably not the head I'm guessing, but
1: uh, I don't think I've really eaten much Taco
0: Tico since I left Hayes either. It's, there's a reason why. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, so, so basically when I got out of college, then, um, or the year before college, I started crop consulting with the guy that was uh, doing our stuff, um, looking at our stuff, but at this area. And so I worked with him one summer, and uh, the next summer he decided he was going to go um, work at a bank and he said if you want me to uh tell people that you would be interested in crop consulting I'll I'll start putting the word out. And so basically when I got um out of college I had close to 7000 acres to crop consult with oh, wow. one with one year experience. That's yeah, that's probably not very common. It, no. I mean, and he was an independent crop consultant, so um, so he wasn't with CropQuest, Servitech. He was with Servitech to begin with and they ventured out to be an And so CropQuest and Servitech were the <clears throat> main ones and then the KEICC. And so I started doing um, that in 97. The first day of 97 is when I started to consulting and I had about 7,000 acres of um, i check corn beans weekly and, and do all that. <clears throat> and so it, that worked out perfect and then uh, uh yeah, we kind of i started i did that for man fifteen twenty years of doing crop consulting, and then about five or six years into it is when uh I kind of finally talked dad and uh helped me let me let me help him on the farm and do so I'd always help, but kind of <laughs> make some more decisions and stuff so
1: Okay, so just just for clarity, like what time frame was that? And so you were out of college in the late '90s and started your crop
0: consulting business. So this is early two thousands. Yeah, so like ninety yeah, seven through two thousand one. I was doing mainly crop consulting, and helping dad. You know, when we needed, you know, like doing, you know, like working ground or, um, you know, harvest or planting and stuff like that. So what did the farm? what what were you guys growing what kind of sure what what the farm looked like that so yeah back then would have been uh, we would have been irrigated um we had probably like 500 gallon wells so we probably had uh we had corn like on half circles of corn and then full circles of beans if we did irrigation uh on dry land it was mostly wheat summer fallow wheat and so um, when i started helping dad out, I said, why don't we try to go third, third, and third, go wheat, followed by Milo, then summer fallow, kind of what the normal normal Kansas rotation is. Um, and so that would have been, you know, we started probably doing that in 2000, 2001, somewhere in that time frame. And so, yeah, I would, kept I kept on doing consulting, but then doing farming as well. And so uh, then about, I would say, We've been about 18 years right now. So about 2004, 2005, um, my uncle from St. Francis, they started doing no-till. Okay. And my grandpa, so my dad's dad was a, Why did they start doing no-till? Like did. That, well, that was, I think that was something my grandpa, as he started, he was, read, he's a good reader. He, he just would read and do things. He could do things with his hands. Uh, brilliant man, brilliant man. Um, and he, him and his son, Bruce, my my uh, dad's brother, younger brother, they just could see the time savings. They could see where um, you're not disturbing the soil. They're in a more fragile environment than probably what we are down here. And uh, so I can remember him coming down and saying something about, you guys I looked at them doing the snow till. You know, Bruce has been doing it for a year or two. And, it looks like it's really going to work out well, and they had gotten into where, doing no-till drill, shellboard header, kind of the whole thing. And so I think it was around 2000, I want to say it was around 2005 or 6, <clears throat> um, John Deere had, they had a fly-in, what it was called, You went from Garden City basically up to where they made the drills up in, I think it was in South Dakota or North Dakota, and it was a group of about 15 or 18 guys from the area, and uh, saw how the no-till drills being made and got a visit with a bunch of those guys. And there was a guy from over at Mead, uh, Darwin Ettinger and his son, Tyler, um, they were on that trip and so I, I made a good connection with them. And I asked him, I said, what's the, what's your best advice for starting out no-till? And they had probably done it three or four years that time. And he said, sell your disc, sell your blade, sell your field conditioner. Because if you leave it there, you'll go back to it. But if you sell it all, you don't, you, you got to figure it out. That's that's not the first time I've heard that advice. Yep, and that was probably the best advice that we got because we had two blades, a disc, a field conditioner that were probably two years or three years old. Brand new equipment. What do you call it a blade? Cause like some people call it. V blade, a, a, like a five by five or seven five or. You
1: know, you know we grow up with names for farm yes. machinery yep. and somebody from 50 miles away, you're like, well, the, I just use a sweet plow. And they're yep. like, what the hell okay. is that? I've well, never heard of such yeah,
0: a thing. Exactly, undercutter or what, yeah. It's, that's what I, a V plow or a, a V blade, you know, seven Sorry. foot, seven by five. And so we had two of those and uh and a new uh, field conditioner and a new disc. And so. Uh, we decided we were going to, and then we didn't have a, a sprayer at that time either, and so we basically traded off all of our newer equipment for a sprayer, spray coop, sprayer, and uh, no-till drill. So so your catalyst for getting into soil health
1: and different crop rotations was primarily came from your grandfather up in the northwest part of the, yep, okay. From St.
0: Francis, and so once we started doing it, we never looked back, we just started doing no-till and we bought a shell header and we just kind of started getting our way into it. And then, uh, like I said, that was, that was about, I think that was probably 2005 or six guys right around that area. We were, I think we're at 18 years right now doing no-till. And then I think probably in I I don't know when green cover seed started, but I'm going to say it was in that late two thousands, early now, 2010 I was up at uh, Oberlin and, uh, visiting with Keith Burns and, uh, I think they're just getting started and asking a bunch of questions about doing cover crops and what to put in and what crops you can maybe put in a rotation. And, and I think they were just learning at that time, trying to figure out. And now, you know, I look back and think, you know, they've learned a They've learned a lot. I don't know. I've, I've learned a lot of things, but um, I haven't put them all into practice because um, we've we tried, we tried cover crops on dry land and there's been years it's worked and other years it hasn't. And I think it's just, it's all dependent on moisture. It's all dependent on, you know, if you have, like last year, where you have good moisture in May, June, and July, but then it turns hot August, September, October. There's no growth and things like that. So it's it's tough to make those decisions, you know, of what the weather's going to be. Yeah, and, and like we were
1: talking earlier when we were touring your, touring your cover crop field about the way the rain came last year, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> so for those of you out there, we're I'm an hour. I'm an hour, hour from home, 15 yeah. basically yeah, yeah. like 50 miles and the rain that you got i, I think was about when i got it late may yeah. through june and into july but we go just another hundred miles west we go out to Lakin. you were mm-hmm. out at bottom line weren't you uh
0: not this year i was not
1: okay yeah they had they got all their rain in may and june right and It's strange because, you know, talking to my friends out there and, you know, what they experienced with growth and, you know, knowing what we had to deal with down here. The plants, they were just so compressed. They were so stressed coming into that third year drought that as soon as they got that moisture, you know, in late May and into June, any sun that came out in late June and July just put up an immense amount of of solar panels. And it seemed like everything went from... Basically, phase one to phase three almost overnight. Like, mm-hmm. we almost missed the vegetative phase because it ran through it so fast. Yeah. It's like they were just, the root systems were just there primed and waiting. And, oh, from my experience, what I saw, I mean, my pastures, they bounce back fast. Mm-hmm. Some of the neighbors I won't mention that practice much more of a set stock type operation, they still don't have grass.
0: It's still not going.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep.
0: And that's what we had some out here where we've, we've kind of rotational grazed, but we haven't done like daily moves. It's more like split them up for two weeks or something and then move them in two weeks. And it's a little better than just throwing them out there. But that's what I noticed when, I mean, we, we were just as clean as this floor, and which didn't look good. And once we started getting moisture, the grass started shooting up and going. And I tried to move a little bit more just to get some growth and get going, and now we've got least um, cover where we've got these snows and stuff and rain and then like, you know, we've had three and a half inches of rain since December, you know, January and February rains. And so, you know, what's that equate to, you know, snow wise, 40, 50 inches, but That's a lot rain is a lot better than what snow is at this time of the year, you know, so um, it's going to go a lot further and re- recharge, you know, and these pastures are going to be in a lot better shape well, in the spring, I believe So
1: soil moisture. And that field we visited looked looked great and yep. just you know that it was what two miles from from there to here yep. um, just this field right down the road yep. that looks like it's probably a more conventional uh, wheat fallow mm-hmm. high tillage environment you know I can look out there there's a pond yeah, and <laughs> then six <laughs> inches away from the pond there's dry crust yeah <laughs> it just blows my mind I mean well. The field, the, there's a farm field right across from my house right. where I live down by Sun City. I grew up farming that field because I worked for the guy that had the lease on it. He's still, same guy still does. Right. And you know, I grew up in that house. I remember going out playing in the ditch next to that farm field <laughs> and snow drifts. So I've been there a while and the, the field entrance. It's almost like they put a terrace at the field entrance, and right on the other side, like the corner where right. they've been going in and out of that field for 20 years. What do you think's right there? A just, pond. Yeah, the sitting water. <laughs> just standing water. It's it's the lowest part of the field. Yeah. But it lacks. It, it has to be like a foot and a half deep before it'll drain out of the field, just because of the way they've, the way they've kept farming it, and kept farming it, and, and I'm also thinking of uh, some of my other. Neighbors, I guess, that are between me and me and town, and I'm thinking of ditches, seeing the ditches full of their field.
0: Yeah, well, and, and that's the whole thing. Um, you know, you're out Burlington, so you. When we listened, to talking um, on the one, but when we when we overgrazed and we had dirt blowing, that was probably one of the worst days that I've ever seen. That just just your heart sank because you just see your soil going. But then up here just north of ours, these guys have either they've gone with um, a feed crop and then then cut it off really close or, a, or a, a failed corn crop and cut it off really close. And so then they have a quarter blowing the whole way and then they have the neighbors started blowing. And so now when you drive up there, their, their corner is cleaned off, the neighbor's wheat is right on the corner and it hasn't come up yet. And then we've had four or five inches of moisture and the wheat still hasn't come up. And so even like when we caught a little in between, between rain and stuff, there was was dirt blowing over there a couple weeks ago after the snow had melted off and blowing in that field. And so it's just, it goes right up towards Ford and it's just like, it just, you know, once you start to take away so much this 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 environment can get really fragile really quick yeah and mother nature can you know she can make sure you see it you know
1: my buddy that traveled with me to burlington brendan did you did i i didn't i didn't meet him no well we we've been working together quite a bit and he had an observation on the way home he said you know we're lucky we live in the best part of the worst (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah
1: and when you think about it you know we're, we're west of the hundredth meridian world i mean highway 35 highway 81 whatever you want to call it right. i mean you get east of there there's more rain it's more humid it gets get easy the, yeah. i'm kind of maybe on the west end of the borderlands where we have some good humid years right. we have some horrible hot dry years um, but out here you don't get the yeah. humidity like i do yep. Yep. and it's it's always dry so <clears throat> And, and I'm trying to tie this back into dust. When we live in these hotter, drier environments, we have to be a lot more cognizant of how of our soil and, and managing our moisture. And I think the reason I think the reason conferences like Burlington mm-hmm. and Bottom Line have such a great vibe. They're producer led and we're trying to farm in the desert. It sucks and everybody struggles all the time. It's not like the I States where shit's easy most of the time right. yep. and your struggle one out of 10, and you don't want to talk about that struggle with your neighbors out here. I mean, it's a fight to survive every year, every day with managing, managing moisture and wind and, mm-hmm. and weather. And it, even more about dust, you know, like there, there's so much about, about dust, like dust in the upper atmosphere mm-hmm. prevents clouds from forming. If clouds can't form, it can't rain. Yep. So that's kind of a deal. And you know, when it's dusty, it just
0: tends to be- And your it, soil moisture, you're, I mean, you're, it, you're crusted, your soil moisture is gonna be less. And even if you get a rainfall vent, it's, it's not gonna take it in like what it should if you had cover.
1: And you have the wind blowing, yep. which picks up those fine dust particles. Yep. And you know, it, it's hard to believe that a dust storm, can shred a wheat field, Mm -hmm. like a young wheat field this time of year, Mm -hmm. but it absolutely can. I mean, dust can come in, and you can have three, four inches of wheat up. It's a mess. And it's gone. (laughs) Yep. So, and I guess to tie this in, okay, there was, there's a property that adjoins me that just sold at auction for $1,800 an acre. It's mostly grass with a little bit of farm ground. Okay. It's, It's a four, I think it's a 400 or it's a 320 and it's got right. like 60 acres, 60 mm-hmm. acres of farm around the rest mm-hmm. of it's grass, $1,800 an acre, mm-hmm. okay.
0: What, what's farm ground around here? Probably 25? Yeah. It, it can go from 25 over by many, old. there's some that went for five or six, but I, I mean, 25 it, to three is a good number for dry land. Yep. Okay. So $3,000 an acre. And every time
1: you see that dust mm-hmm. and it, I know you know this, five tons per acre of mm-hmm. dust is the thickness of a sheet of paper.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can't see that. Yep. You can't see that. There's nobody on earth that can tell they lost a sheet of paper worth of dust today. Yep. But five tons an acre, okay, you paid for that dirt, right? Yep. Oh yeah. And it's the most productive too. <laughs> I mean, you, you paid for that dirt. <laughs> Absolutely. And when I see, when I see ditches full of soil. That obviously washed off of a mm-hmm. farm field mm-hmm. or you see a dust storm like we've seen in the last couple of years, not just here in western Kansas, but in frickin' yeah. Illinois. Right. I mean, when we have a dust storm in Illinois, should be a wake-up call. Yeah. Um and you know I, so what I'm saying is you buy this, two thousand plus dollars an acre, yeah. and you let your asset blow away or wash away every year. I've said this before, I don't think there would be a farmer in business in 12 months if they had to replace the soil that washed off their farm. Oh, right.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, the, and I think that's where, you know, when we were doing farming practices, we tried to keep, at that time, we tried to keep as much cover on as possible, but you just didn't think of how valuable it is. Until after 15 years of doing basically side by side right across the road, and your neighbors doing wheat, summer fallow wheat, wheat, summer fallow wheat, and we've been doing a rotation of whatever we've been doing, just changing it up, but of not tilling, and you go see their terraces full of water, and ours are hardly got any water, and got the same rain, got the same everything, and you're keeping that residue on top, which is sure hard to blow when there's residue there. Now, we've had some, we've had some instances where, like last year, I planted a feed crop over on some, oh, well at that failed, hairy vetch field after Milo, and we had a 30, 40 mile an hour winds come in, and I planted it two days before, and I cut everything up in that little 10 inches spacing. And when we had 40, 50 mile power winds, I mean, it blew, that field, that uh, irrigated, it blew right to the neighbor's house, and I mean, he said he couldn't even see the circles because of how much dirt blew. Yeah. And I'm in no-till, but I had the residue; it just got cut up, and then it had poor timing of a wind, you know. And so, I, even I'm when you're not doing it wrong, no, no, but that's the whole thing for me is that's where I look at it and go. And so here, here I have my irrigation motor covered with this much dirt from blowing. Because of something as fra- as fragile as doing something what I did that I didn't in my mind I thought it's not gonna blow. It's no till. But once it but once the right weather comes through, it's fragile. And then all of a sudden you you know, you see feed coming up, but then you can't see feed because you've got a you know, six inch, eight inch pile of dirt <laughs> covered up. Yeah. And so it's just like <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> Now, now how do you get back to it? I got to leave more cover and I got to make sure the next plant, the crop I plant out there, will not be chewed up and blown away if we have a wind event like that. And so it's like those are things you learn. I mean, and I I tell you this I mean, 18 years, I'll do another 18 years and still have probably some disasters and try to figure it out. But it's yeah, it's, it's well, expensive. I, I was going to ask, you know, since we're talking and irrigated about irrigated is more expensive than dry land, so, uh, yeah.
1: Have you found a winter crop that you could grow here on the plains to help minimize some of, that, some of that dust, some of that blowing that we get with our winter winds? And I guess what I'm saying is, like, have you found
0: something, you know, that's reasonably tall that you can grow? But yeah, the only thing that we, you know, and that's, like, besides trying to do wheat and getting cover, but, you know, after Milo, most years, like, if you got a Milo crop, you really, even if you try to put a rye in there, a cereal rye or something like that, or a triticale, it's always so late in the year, and most of the time you don't have moisture. So even if I could go plant something out there, it's probably not going to come up till January, February anyway, maybe March. And so then, you got to deal with, you know, the March winds are going to blow, April is probably going to blow as well. And so, but it's trying to get those crops coming up. but. You know, I think what led into mind blowing is I just had a Milo crop, then I had a failed, that hairy vetch crop, which is no residue at all. And it, you know, so you've had a year and a half of breaking stuff down, and it's just a bad deal. But um, it's hard, but, you know, besides trying to plant oats early and trying to, you know, get early growth with that. And, you know, if you have nice warm days like what we're going to have in the next 10 days, um, that stuff's going to pop up to the ground and get going. But we've had a lot of years where we plant oats and barley, and it will take forever. You know, it's 1st of May before it starts coming up and you plant it 1st of, 10, 10th of March. It just takes forever to get up. Just cause no moisture. <laughs> no moisture or the cold spells or, you know, and stuff like that. And so then, you know, it comes up in March or May, and now you're only going to get the good out of it from May through maybe June, and then it's going to mature. And then, you know, if you're looking for a cattle crop or do a cover crop for cattle, you just got a really short window then yeah and so so we've we've tried that stuff like that before and, and see if it works and and i think it just depends on the year i think this year at least we got moisture um it'd be a good time to try it and, and get going and have you know if you if you knew you weren't going to be planting a spring crop like a milo or corn or something like that um, but like low residue crops like soybeans and we've tried peas um, before and uh, that just leaves so little residue and then trying to find the market for it as well. It's, you know, like what we were talking about before, trying to do different markets. We've done peas and, and uh, spring peas, and they yielded well. The price was okay, but we had to take them all up the way up to Sharon Springs, you know. So, you know, you got to find trucking, which, is, which was fine, but we had, we had custom cutters that truck, trucked them up there, and it worked out right. But it was like, but then after, you know, June, July, now you're going in the hottest summer months, and the pea residue is not there, now you're baking your soils. Yeah. And then you're gonna try to plant weed in that, and I, I think you're just getting further behind, unless you, um, we didn't, at the time, we didn't think about doing, trying to strip a stripper header on it, which might've worked to leave a little bit more residue, but still, I think it's, you know, it, it's things you try, try and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. So let's, let's back up a little bit. We talked about, you know,
1: that you guys got into cover crops, roughly 20 years ago from the influence mm-hmm. your grandfather so what did like what kind of crops were you growing what was kind of providing the income streams for the farm then versus now and sure maybe walk through some of that transition
0: so yeah so like back when probably in you know 15 20 years ago we were basically just wheat summer fowl wheat um we were irrigated corn but since we had enough water in the um you know we had 500 gallon wells instead of 200 gallon wells now so we would do irrigated corn, we'd take it up to the feed yard um, and then we might plant back wheat after that. And then uh, once we started getting out of corn, we would go soybeans, then we'd plant soybeans on irrigated, followed by wheat, and now we're, now we've transitioned, you know, like on a lot of dry land, dry land acres it was either wheat, summer fowl wheat, until you know 2006 or so we started going to a third, third, third. and then in you know, about 2010, we started trying to go to where, uh, where maybe we could raise an oat crop, and then follow it with wheat, or a barley crop, follow it with wheat. Um, then we tried spring peas. We tried uh, millet after a wheat crop. Um, trying to grow seed for millet. Um, we've done sunflowers. We've done. Uh, I tried the hairy vetch. I'm trying to think what else we've we've tried. And there's a lot of things. And then we've we've grown a lot of uh, triticale. The last several years we've drawn um, uh, for green cover, we've grown uh, triticale for them. And that's been one of our good, it's a totally different plant than wheat. I mean, when it's planted, you can't really tell, but once you start seeing, I think the benefits of the triticale, what it's doing um, to the soil, the roots are better, the growth is better. You get more residue, Um, you know, even when you have volunteer in the fall time, the cattle like that more than they like the wheat, you know, so. And if you have
1: volunteer triticale in your wheat and it goes to the elevator, they're not near as mad if it's
0: got rye in it. Exactly. I don't think they're going to, probably not even notice a difference. I, I'm not for sure someone had asked me out Burlington and I had failed to tell say the whole second time, but you know we had left some volunteer wheat and some volunteer triticale out, and they had asked me about wheat Street mosaic and Triticale, and I said, well, I think it's just in wheat, I don't think it's triticale, you know so but we, we also all of our wheat neighbors around, we don't have any wheat, so we, we really hadn't killed our volunteer. But the volunteer this year came up about the same time the wheat came up on the exact same days. Because so we were right when it rained. That's when the volunteer started coming up when we were planting three days later, and our wheat was coming up the same time. So I didn't think we are going to have a problem, problem with, with the wheat street mosaic. But with the triticale, I'm not 100% sure. I don't, I'm sure they've got diseases and stuff like that, but uh, I don't know if it correlates with going over to wheat. You know, but like I said, with when we've been working with Mark and uh, his cattle, Mark Lording and his cattle and stuff, and when he saw the volunteer triticale, some of the volunteer wheat, I think that's when he's like, "Yeah, we'll send some cattle up." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got Milo stocks too, but this is going to be better. You got way <laughs> too much green stuff. There needs to be a cow standing up. And that's what, and that's what I told him. I said it's one of those things where I'd rather uh, have a cow passing it through a cow. Than me going out and spraying Roundup on it, I'm going to spray Roundup on it anyway, probably to clean it up before we go to Milo this year. But um, but yeah, it it you know might as well get the benefit for him for us financially as well. Watch his cattle, and hopefully we can make some good decisions on that, you know. And so, but yeah, back to your question. I mean, so yeah, so the last 10 to 15 years, we've really changed for the farm. We've we've gone. We've kind of changed up some some things that we've done where, you know, we've done four years of Milo in a row. Like this field right outside the, the barn here, you know, we had one year was wheat, then we followed it with Milo, then we had sunflowers, and then we have Milo, 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 and then this year we'll plant Milo one more time. So we've had seven crops in seven, we'll have seven crops in seven years with one failure. Um, the... Two years ago, Milo was crap, but the weather didn't help us out. Um, but I think our the best, weather's really helped anybody but, out. But our best, but our, you know, the, the thing about it was, you know, we've done sunflowers and like I was telling you earlier, you know, we've done sunflowers, but there's no market. So you got to take them out to Lamar, you got to store them, then take them out to Lamar. But both crops after our sunflowers were probably the best Milo crops we've had. and even it was even in a dry year you know when we compared we had 2,000 pound sunflowers and we followed it with some 80 bushel milo now the year after that 80 bushel milo was five bushel and so (laughs) it's a disaster but but all the other fields that were making 60 to 70 this one was making 80. and so you know we saw some where the sunflowers were bringing up some nutrients and stuff like that they leave it a little bit cleaner but when we were putting back another higher residue crop with the Milo, um, those crops did well. They were get, they were getting something um, compared to where we were just either Milo Milo or Milo after wheat. So, um, but yeah, kind of to your, to your first question, I guess back to it. You know, we've changed up a lot of a lot of things over the last 10 years, I guess I'd say or 15, um, and not out of necessity, but I think it's just what works, what will work. You know, and um, that's why when we're trying to do cover crops and things like that for cattle, will it work or is it going to hurt the next crop going forward? You know, it all depends on weather, I think, you know, but, um, yeah, that's kind of that part of it. Okay. <laughs> what, uh,
1: so you, you mentioned something that you used to have 500 gallon wells, now you have 200 gallon wells. Mm-hmm. Like. They didn't steal your 500-gallon wells and replace them. Right. Is that because Ogallala is just, just dropping? Drop. Okay. Yep. So that, that, that kind of made me wonder because I know there's, well, there's areas like in Kiowa County up on the Rattlesnake Basin mm-hmm. that their their well levels are rising. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know some of our friends out at Lake and at Bottom Line, um, there's some of them out there on ditch and there's a lot of them out there on well and to hear them tell it that they don't have. I guess I never really asked, but it doesn't seem like they have a water problem. They, they have a water problem yep. out there, but I know that there are areas that are experiencing things like that. So I guess, have you seen the, the water issue change anybody else or are people just trying to ignore it and keep doing what they're doing around here?
0: Yeah, so, there, so what we've done, we've gone from corn to beans to Milo. So we're going from high water use little less higher water use to Milo being low water use. And so instead of us running all the time, now like the last couple of years, once it got dry, we just had to run all the time just to stay ahead. And we still get 130, 140 bushel Milo, decent, good Milo, <clears throat> but it never would, you know, get that 170, 180. But we're really not, we're really not farming for that. We're not fertilizing for that either. We're, you know, we're trying to be, hey, let's put out 120 pounds of input of uh, N in and if we get 140 great you know let's hope it's not 80. Um, we never had had a disaster on irrigated like that but what, what i've seen with some guys is there's a lot of farmers that will they're doing either half circle of corn half circle of milo or their um, half circle of wheat and then half circle of corn Instead of a full circle of corn that'd just be because they don't have they're splitting the water up so yeah. so basically if you got a 400 gallon well you just do a half circle that's kind of making an 800 gallon well if your wheat's finished up in June April or you know April may you're watering for your wheat June you're kind of finishing it off right now in June July August now you're watering your corn yeah um, there's guys that now like I said we've got one field that it's it started at, you know when we first bought it it was probably like a seven 700 gallon well, and it's like 550 now. Um, but the ones that are over here by the, the main farm where we started, and that was where my my grandpa Berger, where he was one of the first ones to start irrigating in this area. Um, hindsight being 2020, he what he did is did one well, but he did two quarters for that. So instead of putting one well with one circle, he was doing one for two. I wish he would have done one for one and we'd have all that. But now, as it's going through, you know, I can remember dad probably back in when I was, you know, 93, 94, saying, when you're farming, we won't have water here anymore. It won't, it won't be efficient to water. You think he knew that they we're going to have water Well, obviously oh, he knew. I think, I mean, and, I, and I've told my kids, I said, you know, if a system blows over, I, I don't see any reason why I spend $120,000 on a brand new system to put it up for something that might last 10 more years. For... For a 100-gallon well, you're not going to raise a 60-bushel wheat crop, or a 60-bushel bean crop, or a 190-bushel corn crop, you know? And it's, so… I, okay, I, I need to change units here.
1: You keep talking about gallons a minute a well, and I, I mean, I can visualize that, but I've started to think about, you know, the irrigation, you know, pivots using water in terms of inches of rain or acre. Feet. Sure. Like, what does that translate to?
0: Um, That's probably a good question. Uh, So, an inch of rainfall is around twenty-seven thousand gallons of water per acre. So, when you're trying to put an inch out there, um, we've got like almost I think it's a little under two inches acre feet. Well, I I can't say that. I I don't have those numbers in my head. That's that's because because well, I'll just say this. If we would to try to put an inch of water on with a 250 gallon well, it'd probably take us two weeks to get around Okay. slow to soak it in because what we're basically doing, we'll do a five or six day circle and we're getting on about half an inch to maybe 60 hundreds okay. with a 200 gallon well. And so we're, what we're doing is just trying to, once we start, we're just trying to walk it slow and soak it up and but we're also trying to make it quick enough that we can, you know, get around. So we keep that top up and then if we get a rain, it'll help us out. We can either shut it off or just keep. Yeah, yeah. Up. Does that make, if that makes sense. I, I just, I wanted to know for reference, because you know, I've
1: heard some other people talk about, well, I put an inch and a half on every day, every 36 hours. I'm like, yeah. well, that <laughs> sucker's just out there <laughs> slinging around. <laughs> yeah,
0: and yeah, that must be a 1200 gallon well or something that they can throw it out. And that's, you know, and that's like some guys over at Fowler, you know, they've got some bigger wells, you know, like eleven hundred twelve hundred gallons you know you start thinking well that's just on one circle and that's why they're doing corn and and they do pretty big yields but you know we're that equals six of our i mean we could do six circles with what we're trying to do you know and do that with milo crop and so you know if i I could do five circles of milo with a thousand gallons and split it up between them i'd rather do that that'd make more money Hands down. than trying to put that thousand gallons on one circle. Instead of going, you know, I'd rather have 120 bushel milo in three or four circles, than 250 bushel corn on one. You know, it just it makes sense. But you know, I think that's where some guys have the water, so they're going to use it. And some guys, I think they they want to use it before we lose it. Yeah. Um, So that's
1: there's also a different mindset when you own the dirt versus when you're renting the mm-hmm. dirt or Absolutely. leasing or sharecropping or whatever yep. whatever specific arrangement. It's it's disconnecting the the ownership mm-hmm. from the actual management is when that disconnect happens, you start to lose sight of what's the long term vision? What's this gonna be like in twenty years? What what how am I gonna make a living on this in twenty years? And I feel like I feel like agronomy, modern agronomy teaches us, well, we'll just invent our way out of that. Mm-hmm. We'll just come up with, you know, the next best herbicide, we'll come up with the next best fertilizer, we'll just keep inventing better seeds. And we're not, it's an arms race with nature. Yeah. And she's gonna kick our they'll, ass. They'll figure
0: it out. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's gonna kick our butt one. I, I can still remember, you know, when I was at college and Monsanto was coming out with Roundup Ready stuff. And so when they, when they came out, I mean, I, w- I had done a, a year or two of doing crop consulting and kind of heard like what realm's going to do and you can use this amount and it's going to kill every weed and the crops are just going to come up and do everything fine. And I, st- I still remember doing a paper, one of our last things that we had to do when we graduated and <laughs> looking back on it, I was so, I mean, I was talking to the Monsanto guy and business with him and he was telling me how, you know, it will never have any resistance. It, you know, it'll never show resistance, it'll never, and another girl in the class took the total opposite view and said in five years there'll be resistance. I was going to say, I mean, you can't stand
1: up there and tell me it's not going to have resistance. I
0: know how biology works. (laughs) and, And so, and so I was so, when I was doing mine and then she came up like four people after me and I was so pissed off because she doesn't know the same information I know. But where was I getting my information from? Monsanto. Monsanto, who's doing Roundup. And so, um, you know, in the end, you know, now 20 years later, 25 years later, you look at where we're at with weeds. You know, Roundup is basically just a good grass killer now. It's nothing that's going to be... something that you rely on that you know you're going to get a tough weed like a pig weed kosher or something like that and so but it's how much has changed over that time you know we're the
1: same we're roughly the same age you're a couple years older than i am yeah. i seem to remember back in the 90s that there was a flare-up about roundup and people using roundup and something about like changing the formulation and then they started seeing then you start seeing roundup at home depot Right. For people to put on their lawns. Right. And it's like, okay, it was too bad for agriculture, and we're going to tell you you can't use it for agriculture, so we'll just relabel it and sell it at Home Depot? <laughs> I, I didn't think that made a whole lot of sense. And, you know, it, for the sake of clarity, I've sprayed some Roundup, oh, yeah. I've used Arsenal, I've used 2,4 D, trying right. to go out and kill brush. Past life, I've kind of learned a little bit better. Yep. To think that, you know, we're going to have this, we're going to use these chemicals that are going to go up and and prevent oh. things from growing. Because right. they don't really kill anything, they just prevent, they just block growth pathways. And that's not going to have other effects in the ecosystem. Right. Like that, that's really short-sighted and to think that, well, not to think that, to buy the lie that, oh, plants can't develop resistance to this or, you know, plants won't ever be resistance to this. I, but you just don't understand how biology works. Like there's a fundamental law of nature. She's going to try to evolve and survive. And it doesn't matter if it's the worst weed on the planet. It's got the same drive to evolve and survive, to continue its genetic code that everything else on this earth has.
0: Yep. Well, you know, and that's, I I think even, you know, I look at all these, when we we talk about no till, you know, in theory, you should have no weeds and no till because you're not disturbing the soil. But there's so much. There's always going to be weeds coming up. Well, what's a weed plant? Well, yeah, it, it's a, <laughs> th- nothing that you it's whatever. If yeah, I guess it depends on what your version of weed is. But yeah, in, in a in my crop, wheat crop, I don't want to have pig weeds out there because that is nothing that is going to be a, a sellable product. OK, but that's, that's fair. Right. On the other
1: hand, and a. a love to talk about this so we're talking about pigweeds kochia right. a lot of people had that problem last year in their wheat crop. oh everywhere yep so the conventional way to deal with it call the sprayer yep. have them come out burn it down so then you can run the combine out mm-hmm. there or you could go swath it and bail it or whatever Yep. okay fine i know a guy down in alba my friend tim let's tell you about i really bought some of my head got right. some of my heifers out of the barn he uh he works with the co-op down there in alva and there were a couple wheat fields that he got heard about that the spray plane couldn't get to so he told the guys like i'll just come I'll, can i have it i'll just buy it from you as it stands and mm-hmm. the guy was like yeah sure fine whatever it's full of pigweeds cochin and crabgrass i don't care <laughs> so tim called the chopper the silage crew and he came out and he chopped all this failed wheat that insurance had adjusted to like 20 or 25. Right. Of crabgrass, pigweed, and kochia, set the silage choppers after it. The chopper man hated it because it was just gummed up the whole machine. He put it in the buck, sent it off for a test. Came back at thirteen and a half percent. Yep. And he's got less than fifty dollars a, like, right. a ton in it. Like around fifty dollars a ton
0: in it. So. So what's a weed? Right. Well, exactly. And so, yeah. And I think that's that's the main thought is trying to figure out how to combat it, but also, you know, be to make something good out of it as well. You know, and, and if you've got cattle, you can use a different source of, you know, if you're just a straight farmer that doesn't have cattle, that doesn't, that's just a grain crop, you know, you're gonna to wanna to try to clean everything up, keep it clean, get the best yield, you know. And, you know, and that's the other thing, you know, leads into the point that, you know, when we were at Burlington talking, you know, we had a field that we didn't put any, any fertilizer on because we thought, you know, before the rain started coming, um, we just thought it's going to make maybe three to five bushel. It it's going to be crap. Well, then we got some rains and the wheat started looking a little bit better and getting better and we decided it's a little bit too late to put fertilizer on, let's just let it go. And so as the, as the wheat was progressing and getting closer to harvest, I could see down below some weeds that were coming up but all the neighbors around, all their weeds were up almost to where it was gonna be heading out, or close to where it's head. And so they're all spraying. And they're they're spraying and so they're killing back the weeds and ours just stayed there. And that was when probably I first started thinking, Okay, that's a nitrogen issue. I've got some weeds out there, but they're they're not utilizing the weed is utilizing it, but they aren't it's not over fertilized. Right. So then all of a sudden, they're going to start growing and use that fertilizer than what the wheat will. And so as good those guys started, you know, they started trying to uh, spray. Well, then, you know, someone also told them, hey, there's probably going to be some fungus out there. So, you know, on your wheat, you better go ahead and spray that as well, you know. Our wheat was clean. It didn't have any problems or anything like that. And so um, those are little things I learned this last year, and like I'd, I'd said before, a couple of other people, it's it's one of those things where we've got a really good potential for wheat this year. We've top dressed, we put fertilizer out. In hindsight, I should have left probably a 20 or 40 acre patch and just said, nope, I'm not gonna put anything out there. Just as a control? Let's just see what happens. Let's just see, does that make 30 bushel, 40 bushel, 50 bushel, what's the weed pressure, what's the fungicide, what's, what's that all gonna be like? when you're fertilizing and you're putting stuff out, you don't think of that until two weeks later and you're going, ah, shoot, we should have, should have left the control out there, you know? Do you want to go
1: down a rabbit trail on fungus and fungicide? We can. I feel like we've sprayed so much fungicide in the world for so long that we've eradicated
0: almost all of the good fungi and mycorrhizae. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I think that's probably where, and that's why our soils are, needing it. Because we have,
1: and that leads into the bacterial fungal ratio. Right. Have you done, you've done a lot of those soil tests, haven't you?
0: I've done some. I haven't done many with like region ag or or Hades. Um, We do typical soil tests this year i'm going to do some more after going to listen to lance and listen to try to do some of these other ones um that'd be our friend lance gunderson Gunderson. yes yep and so when he was at no the plains and sitting there listening to him and going i've got to get i've got to get in doing that to figure out of what looking at the because as a crop consultant a trained crop consultant that's all i did a soil test right right and so I look at a Servitec soil sample, or from Ward Laboratories, and I see it has 12 parts per million of FOSS. I need to get, for a 60 bushel crop, I need to get up to 30, you know. So I need to put out 50 pounds of FOSS. And, and so my, my crop consulting brain says we need, you know, the moron, you know, from Nick, <laughs> you know, your Nick Foss and <laughs> Bryce and those guys, your moron deal. But also that was always like covering my ass. Also, because as a crop consultant, I'm going to have a job. If I tell a guy, put out 100 pounds, they only need 100 pounds of fertilizer, of nitrogen, and they have a 140 bushel crop, but they're looking for a 250 bushel crop. Well, they're going to want to put out 250 pounds because that's just what you do. You put 250 out, to get 250 bushels. You put more on, you get more off. Absolutely. And and so, so, and I think that's where you, so for me, I guess, where these Haney tests, are looking at so much more different a way of looking at that, and, and, and we, we did some tests maybe seven or eight years ago on one field, and I left a 40-acre patch where it said just to put out 50 pounds of nitrogen, and so we put out 60, and it made like 80, I think it made 80, 85, and then where we put 100 pounds on just to do the conventional, uh, the Milo made 110, well it was right at 110, yeah. So it's almost a 25 bushel difference in yield. But... Is that just the wind? I think it's just the wind, yeah. yeah it must <laughs> be seven. really ripping out there. <laughs> I didn't think it was supposed to be wind. I thought it was supposed to be seven miles mile today, but whatever. But uh, so, you know, in my farmer brain, I lost 25 bushels an acre at, let's just say $4 from Milo. So that's $100 an acre that I've lost that I could've put out 25, 20 pounds, $20 more. So did I lose 80, $80 or did I, could I have set myself up for later to keep on things working, let the system work? Yeah. You know, instead of keep on putting, and so you start, you know, you always second guess yourself until you start seeing other people doing the system, changing it and believing it, you know?
1: So I guess what I want to ask now is, Is sometimes, is it hard to turn off your crop consultant part of your brain with wanting to do inputs rather than just trusting that your biology is doing what it's supposed to do without?
0: Yep. And where, and you know, the worst, not the worst thing, but where my brother and I farm together and so in my mind, where you're trying to do inputs and stuff like that, and you say, let's only put out 60 pounds instead of a hundred pounds, is it going to work? (laughs) all right and so then if a crop only makes 60 instead of 100 bushel you got 40 bushels there to play with and there's a hundred dollars an acre if you do that on a thousand acres you know that's pretty good then split that by two right and then then you got you're going oh crap we just you know for both families now we're we're swimming you know trying to figure out trying to survive and go from next and but then also but is it where also five years from now where you've cut your inputs by 30 40 50 percent and the system's working it's just getting through a couple years of of what ifs getting through years two three and
1: maybe year four it seems like the first year when somebody makes a big jump from high input conventional towards more regenerative low input no-till systems first year is great second year not so much third year the learning curve gets pretty steep sure. and the fourth year is when things start getting better
0: Yep. you just got to get over that second and third year as long as that first year went well the second and third year believing that what you're doing is right and, and
1: and I think a lot of guys quit yep. when that verdict when the learning curve starts to approach vertical in the third year
0: and then also if the weather doesn't play a factor in it because yeah. you can always just say well y- you know We didn't get enough rain or we didn't get but it's it's easy to blame the
1: the rain. It is. It's 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 very it's so easy to blame
0: climate on any failure we have.
1: And sometimes, yeah, that's the reason. But we also need to be looking at ourselves and like, what did I do to make this what did I do to prevent this from being a success? Yep. Not necessarily cause a failure, but what did I do to
0: prevent this success? What could have been done. Right. I mean and and that's I I look at it and say and so, you know, and I guess I'll say this, and i we haven't probably used phosphorus on this farm in probably seven or eight years. Okay. When we were at a no till on the plains, we were probably listening to Christine Jones, I'm guessing, and she said, you know, if you have if you've been putting on phosphorus for the last 10 years, 20 years, you probably have enough for the next 50 years, you know, if you've kind of kept up. And that's what we, you know, whatever the soil test said, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do, that's why we do it. And so, I'd look at some of our soil tests and we see it going down on the conventional side. Um, But there are times when you can't compare yourself to your neighbor because your neighbor is not doing the same thing what you're doing. And even if they are? the
1: neighbor has some subtle difference in their operation or financial structure or relationship with ownership that you can't see that makes everything
0: totally different well and and if they're putting out let's just say 40 pounds of foss and 80 pounds of nitrogen and they get 60 bushel and i get 55 and i say how'd your wheat do and they say five bushel better now in my mind is because how much inputs do you put in or was it, could I got the 60 if I would have put out 10 or 20 pounds of phosphorus? You always wonder, don't you? Right, or <laughs> should I put out a little bit of sulfur or a yeah. little bit of zinc? If I just put a little bit more out there, just just, just not much, but a little bit more, <clears throat> or do I believe the system's taking care of me and go from there? And so that, that has been one thing that I don't think I've really talked about is just you know, where we haven't done phosphorus. And I'll guarantee if I go take a soil sample, it'll show we're low on everything. But when I look at crops and I haven't done it, I listen to Nick and as much, you know, he does all this all the testing and stuff like that. I haven't done enough soil or a tissue sampling throughout the year to figure out, okay, what do we have? I, I go by looks, if I see purple in the leaves or anything like that, I'm like, okay, I know we're probably short on FOSS and could kind of go from there, you know?
1: Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to follow along because I just don't have that strong of a crop or agronomic sure. background um and there just before you just before you kind of finish this i was kind of had a little red light flashing like okay well you know he's got education crop consulting you know what plants look like you know what they should look like okay seven years i mean if it was a year or two might have a few other might have some different questions but doing it for seven years you're obviously confident that you know the test results are the test results lying to you about what the soil needs? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, it's just like anything else. Or, 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 I get another way to ask it. Are the tests that we're using to look at our soil and determine our soil fertility needs, you know, uh, NPK, are those outdated?
0: They're outdated. I think they're outdated. I <laughs> think that's one of those things. And what's so hard for me is to look at a Haney test, you know, that either. Lance is doing or or Haney and them guys. I don't understand those tests like I know the Servitex test or the ward test. Okay. Right? So, when I go listen to uh, Lance talk and then they show a test and stuff like that, part of it I'm like, are these numbers reliable and and how are they reliable? But when they've done 100,000, 200,000 samples and they get people to do to stay with that and work with that and it it, it's just one of those things on my my farm i've got to buy in right and so that's where it's hard for me to with my farmer crop consulting hat on to try to do something a little bit different when i think i just don't understand it 100 percent of the way that they test without the acids and everything like that. We'll put it through the same chemical, but also it's just a snapshot in time of what that soil has. You know, I can right. go out there now, today, and get something totally different than what's going to be in June. Oh know? yeah. And so, and that's where I think I always try to, I always try to take soil samples somewhere in that March to April time frame because that's kind of where I always have a snapshot because we always want to have something like right before. But if I do something maybe in the fall. Like what are we, what nutrients
1: are we starting the growing season with? Yeah, I want to see what,
0: I want to see what the baseline is. And so that's where I think once we get into warmer weather and stuff like that, I want to, I want to send some Hades off and just see what are we at? And what, what can we do and, and, and see where let's test it this year and let's try it on some pieces and see what happens. I don't know. That's kind of. It's a, it's a learning, but it's a learning game, you know, and you don't want to, you don't want to change the whole farm on it, but you got to make little pieces change and see what, what's going to do. And, and that's what I think so hard with doing farming sometimes is, you know, 40 acres isn't too much to change, but when you do 400 or, you know, 1,000 or 1,200 or something that's a third of your farm, then you're really sticking your neck out there scale finding a
1: scale that you can experiment on mm-hmm. that's big enough to give you worthwhile information mm-hmm. small enough that it doesn't it's not too much of a labor and resource suck mm-hmm. small enough that if it completely fails won't hurt that's your bottom line right. but then again it's also got to be large enough to be relevant yep and you know finding finding something in there and you know maybe we'll get into this here in a little bit, but just, you know, just a little bit, we've toured around and seen some of the other, other enterprises you and your family have going on here. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's really cool. Like, yeah. you know, the quail operation downstairs, that seems like it's, it's going real well. It seems like the rabbit operation is maybe still in startup phase and that doesn't work. You're not in a whole lot. Yep. And you got cute rabbits, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and the chickens, yeah. I think it's, Five years ago, nobody had chickens, yep.
0: and now every well, now everybody's you know, got and, chickens. And that's the whole thing. You know, I can remember going up to Gay Brown's and looking at his chicken tractors. You know, and just had old livestock uh, trailers that are kind of fixed up. And so we kind of took some of that. And so that's what you know with the chickens out here. Um, you know, we. You know, you look on Next Tech or try to find something old and and people are like, oh, it's a brand new floor. It's like, oh, I, don't, I don't want to use that. I don't want a brand to, new floor. I, I don't <laughs> want a floor. You know, I, I'm going to take the floor out. Like, give me something <laughs> old and rusted out with tires Tire. that barely are on there. No lights. I just, <laughs> just cool. got to get it home. I just got to get it home during the day and, and hope a cop doesn't stop me in Pratt, you know? But uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where um, what we've noticed, uh, you know, we had these three trailers out here um over there at that cover crop when it was growing and stuff and so you know they were out there in the cover crop the stuff's you know six seven foot tall and uh it's just it's just cool seeing animals out there producing a product that you know is quality it's good you're going to sell it to a consumer that you know it's clean it's 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 good for them and but i also look at it as it's good responsibility for the kids as well yeah they're doing it because i've got the two the, my oldest son and oldest daughter that that are doing the chickens chickens and quail and stuff um they work really good as a team together um, levi the older one he'll he does a lot of the chores but lara has to do the cleaning the packaging the selling you know <laughs> she does the process, the, the hard part. The, 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 you know, you can look. The, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of those things that's labor intensive or not so much labor, but the work behind it to take them up to sell and do stuff like that. So uh, I think they both, they, they're enjoying a the little bit of break, but the chickens are off right now. They are not laying anything. They're laying a few, but not much. But I think once it gets back into March, we'll start feeding them uh, a little bit more protein to get them going. And then we'll move these trailers up a little bit, let them eat where the Milo's at and stuff like that, I can see where they are probably almost a hundred yards away from where home's at. I mean, Levi said he got a text from a friend the other day. He's like, Hey, you guys, his chickens are out. No, they're not. <laughs> and Levi's like, no, that's where they're supposed to be. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you know, I, I think people under, don't understand. That's what we're doing. You know, if they don't come by this road, they don't really see what's going on. But, um, yeah, my chickens are out. They're
1: outside. That's where they're supposed they're to be. They're not supposed to be just in containment,
0: you know. And, and let, them, let them be chickens, you know. And, and I, I'm I'm really shocked. I mean, there are so many people that are like, well, what do you do with them at night? It's like, you shut the doors. So they just come back and they roost? I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's kind of what they've done ever. <laughs> that's what chickens do. So, and I think people are like, you got to gather them. you got to put them in. It. And it's like, no, this is probably one of the... I mean but we did have some uh we did have some issues with i think some coyotes said so we have we have a protecting fence around but if they get out of that fence they're game for coyotes or uh, chicken hawks. and there was one day we went over there with like 330 birds i think and uh, one day we were just counting and we were down like 310 and that's what i told levi i said either we need to bring them back a little closer to home or we need to do a little quality control <laughs> <laughs> because we weren't sure if it's, it's, it's coyotes or it was chicken hawks or what it was. But uh, but yeah, it, it's one of those things that you're going to lose some and, and it's going to be what it is. But, you know, they're producing, you know. And when it's cool to go out to chicken nest, nest box and see 250, 300 eggs and they're pretty clean. And they come out and they can wash them and put them in. You know, have two or three refrigerators full of, of uh, eggs and I mean like when they took off this price this last year you know we I think we we're like four dollars a dozen and you can find them cheaper for two fifty, three three bucks you can find them a lot cheaper at Walmart or Dillon's but no, it's not it, the same product exactly and, and we gotta always keep on saying that's that's what we've got to keep on saying is it's not the same product I mean these are they're, they're fed pro the protein is peas which we go out and try to find so that's non GMO and we're trying to find stuff that's that's you know, pretty, you know, it's not organic, but it's what we can do with it. Okay. And so it's one of those things that we're not going to try to sell for seven or eight dollars. Like what Jacob does, Jacob goes and gets everything that's organic and, and they, they do it on grass and they do it and they do a good job. Mm-hmm. And if you probably compare ours to theirs, you'll probably see a difference. But I think one of those things where, um, but you also get what you pay for it's still light years better than what you're going to get at the grocery store coming yep. out of the commodity system and and i think that's what it's sometimes and we've got some really good customers that like in buckland they didn't blink an eye when it was four dollars they just kept on buying kept on buying and then when we, once we started to go to dodge i thought we'd probably you know you'd, you'd need a little bit more help or they'd probably say well you can get them 350 at dylan's and get them at dylan's one would ever say anything No one say and then once we started selling the quail eggs and duck eggs, you know, it's always fun that other people are like, Well, what else do you have? Yeah. You know, what else? Well, we've got some sheep, we've got some goat, we've got cattle, we got beef, you know. And so all of a sudden they're like, Okay, so what do you do with the beef? You know, and so now all of a sudden you open up Dodd City to where, you know, there's people asking all the time about what what do you got next? You know, so it's it's always it's good to expand I've wondered
1: what it would be like to try to sell beef in Dodge City.
0: I think it just depends on the person, but we've sold halves we've sold full beefs, and um i'll I'll just say this uh, when i when I do it, it's grass fed. Like when they, we might, you know, they would be out in milo stocks or something like. That. So they're gonna get some grain. Some that they're never gonna. I'm never gonna say they're not. They've never had grain. Right. But I try to grass finish them. But I, I sell it where I don't. I probably sell undersell it. But I'm still early enough in. I don't say early enough at the game. I know what the finished product's gonna be like with what I've got right now. But when we first did it, you know, everybody's like, oh that grass fence sucks it's terrible to so eat like eating shoe leather oh it's terrible like, it's you gaming. gotta use a knife you got you know I can still remember doctor over at Mineola he bought a, a full and uh, <laughs> he called me up and he said Lance that's the best steak I've ever had I cut it with a fork and I said okay so it's good he's like yeah it's good keep doing whatever you're doing and so I've never had anybody say it's terrible. I've, I, you know, we obviously eat a bunch, and I, I'm not. You know, yeah, maybe it's not as good as a corn-fed. Maybe it doesn't have the marbling like what it is. But you know, this last year, um, oh, we took some over to Fowler, and we've done that for a couple of years. And this last one we took over, he goes, "What did you do different with this one? Did you give it some grain?" I said, "No." He's like, "Well, this one here," he said. I had the. He goes, "I was cutting up roast." he goes, I just had to take it out and show my wife It's like how good this is. And he goes, it looked like something that was finished in the feed yard. He goes, so whatever you did, just keep doing it. I said, well, I know what I did. I had grass this year. We yeah. got rain in April or May, June, and July. Well, we finished it in October. And you processed in October? So, yeah. So he got three good months of green where the last three years – we yeah. were feeding bales just to get them up to weight, you know, yeah. so you're not, you know, but like he said, I, I told him, I said, yeah, if I, if I got green anywhere, I'll, <laughs> I'll put them out there and I know how to finish now. But, and that, like I said, sold to a guy in Dodge, he bought a half side and, you know. Uh, As part of my destocking
1: program through last year, when I was looking at drought, I had a pen of coals and it's like, okay, well, I'll just call and get some dates. Mm-hmm. So I got, like, three, four dates and July 15th. Yeah, I really wish I would have been able to. Well, you get them in May. I mean, and I didn't. Well, perfect. It's like, God, I wish I would have been able to wait, like, another 30 or 45 days for them to gain more.
0: Yeah. I mean, And that's what I, you know, I, we, the one that finished off the best, he was probably only, like, maybe 1,150 pounds, 1,100 pounds. He's just a little bit smaller than what I, I just didn't feel comfortable. He was supposed to go in in April or May. I can't remember. It was before the rains. And I told my wife, I said, I just, we probably could do it, but let's just, I, I put him off to October. And he had, so he'd been right at 28. Yeah, probably not even that, 20, yeah, 28 months maybe. But the, all of a sudden you just watched him eat that grass and it was just like, you just watch him get bigger and just it was like, and then when he told me about that and I, I, we had another half side and that's what I told him, I, I told Heidi, I said, we're keeping the other half. If he's saying it's this is good, we're keeping this half. Yeah. <laughs> so you buy another freezer, <laughs> so you get another freezer full of meat and you just make sure you're, you're yeah, stocked well just... up. So we don't, we, we've been through this 2020 shit where, <laughs> and you can't, and that, that's why we were so lucky back when uh, in 2020. Uh, we had like six or seven of them that we finished and I can still remember calling up when we used Dodge and, uh, I called up in like February and I said, what's your dates? Like, cause I, you know, i getting started <laughs> right on this COVID shit. And I said, what's your dates? And he said, oh, we've got some in April and May, but they're kind of getting filled up. And I said, well, let's do it. Let's go ahead and do it in May, May and April, May, whenever. And then I think I called back. I think I had seven and I only did six and so I had one left and so like two weeks after I called him I said hey I got one more can I slip that into May and he's like we're out to November now and then like two weeks later they were out to like December or uh, January February of the next year and I was just like oh crap <laughs> so now you're calling Mead or Fowler or you know trying to find for that one other one because I mean what do you do but yeah that was that was I was glad we we just hit the time, the right timing on that deal but uh now yeah. you just try to figure out you know how good local it's nice to have local butchers that y- you trust or you need to learn how to trust and and can finish it but also if they know what they're doing also having that relationship with your
1: butcher is mm-hmm. is key and you know everybody you talk to that's been in the meat business for more than about 35 seconds they've got a story about a butcher that cheated them, or stole meat or didn't give him back animal or whatever and yep. th- th- there, there has to be a tremendous amount of trust because the guy up front's is going to tell you one thing but it's the guys out back and if if they're sloppy and not keeping track yeah i could see animals getting mixed up i could see oh, yeah. parcels getting mixed up but i let's just say I don't do that job, I'm not in that business
0: because those are headaches I don't ever want to have to worry about. Yeah, and I'll just say we've got stories. I could tell stories, but um, we've kind of figured that if they have a freezer full of meat out front, whose meat is that? Because uh, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Okay, and and that's a fair point, you know, but I haven't been, I've used, uh, I've
1: used Kiowa, Mm -hmm. I've used Mead, Mm -hmm. and I've been through a couple others. But Kiowa, well, I've used Medicine Lodge, too, the new one we got down there, which is great. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And you go down to Kiowa, and, you know, they have a whole meat market. Yep. I mean, across the alley from the packing plant. Right. You know, and that's also where you go pick up your stuff. Well, Ricky, the guy that runs that plant, in Kiowa, he's been down there for over 20 years yep. and you know, we know that he goes, he goes to the sale barn and he mm-hmm. buys yes. stuff yep. and hauls it to his plant and knocks it off for his customers, for his, yep. for his brand and his labels. Okay. That's fine. The kids down there at Mead, mm-hmm. you know, they've got plenty of stuff in their meat cases mm-hmm. and, and you know, even at medicine lodge, there's stuff in their meat cases. And I wouldn't. I'm not going to say that. I've had the feeling that any mine's ever going to end up there, but I'm also not raising 1,600-pound corn-finished steers <laughs> so, right. that are going to grade prime. Right, right. So that wouldn't be. You know, that's that's less of an issue for me. But I could definitely see. You know, like if you've got a history of your animals yielding. you know What you're doing? Yep. If all your yield percentages are within two or three percent, and then suddenly you get an animal back and it's 10
0: percent lower. Yeah, you're gonna wonder where that meat went. Or, Or you get what what's been our issue is you get charged for let's just say 400 pounds of meat, ground beef. Well, when you start putting it in the freezer and it's in two pound packages, and you only come home with 360 pounds, but you got charged for 400. Where's that 40 pounds at? Yeah. And so so then you call them up and ask them, and then it's like, well, that was what was in your deal, and so. Was it then now? Do you go back to each package and is it 2.1 pounds or is it two pounds? Is it actually two? You know, they have a little fluctuation, yeah. But is there 40 pounds worth of fluctuation? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that's where it's that's where the trust comes in. And and I like I said, it's one of those things I don't like to burn bridges, but it's it's one of those things that you just you know, and that's what I told the butcher over at Fowler when he said he took that roast and said, look at this. And I said, well, how did it taste? Oh no, we didn't eat it. We didn't eat it. I said, i am just giving you a hard time. I said, I'd like to no, know if, if it was good. Let me know. And he was like, no, we wouldn't, we don't even do that. <laughs> he goes, so it's just kind of funny the way he said it, but I just kind of gave him a hard time on that. But, but you know, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, we've used, we've used me we've used Dodge. We've used, uh, uh Burkhard up at K- Kinsley. And you know some of the best advice, like you said, the guys in back. When well, we took some sheep up there, or some uh, yeah, some sheep last year, and uh, the one guy he goes like, "How old are these?" And I said, "Oh, they're about just about a year old." And he goes, "They'll probably do okay," but uh, he said next time bring them in when they're ten ten months old. He said that'd be your best. He said, "Yeah, they're gonna be smaller," but he said that'll be your best meat you'll ever have. And and so I, I've, you know. Was that from the cutters in the back? Mm-hmm. That's the guy that, that, that's Not the guy up front. Not the guy up front, but I'm, <clears throat> as I was talking to him, he just said, well, we, we have sheep. And he goes, that's what we do is 10 to, 10 to 11 months. That's a sweet spot. He said, eight months, they're a little bit too early. 12 months, 14 months, they start to get a little bit, a little tougher. And these would light at 12. They tasted fine. They were like a Katahdin and St. Croix mix, it, you know, they're hair sheep, they're good tasting. But I thought. I've got some that are a couple months away. That it's like I'm gonna need to call them up again and and let's try ten months. I just want to see what the difference. But you know that's the worst. Well, but also my son Levi likes to hunt, and he's processed several deer by by himself before. And he's like, I can do that. (laughs) Just a little deer. (laughs) That's what he said. And so, so we've kind of kicked around that idea. Well, let's just keep it for him. Let's let him, let's let him do it. We're not selling it to anybody. We're going to keep it for ourselves. What's the difference between sheep and deer? I don't, besides me feeding them all the time or, you know, watching them all the time, I've got a relationship with those sheep. Right. <laughs> he doesn't, <laughs> kind of like it with the deer. So he can, I'll let him do it. Then once it gets cleaned up a little bit, I can start cutting around and do I I do that part. It's the, the killing part. I don't, uh, I'll let Levi take care of that. <laughs> so
1: let's, uh... Let's kind of change tracks here and let's how did your how did you get interested in soil health and, and where and when did your
0: soil health journey start? Hmm. So I never liked school I did I didn't when when I went to college when I went to high school it was a means to an end just I guess to get that paper. Okay. I don't know, just to graduate, just to get out of there. And so when I did crop consulting to go to Hayes, to get a agronomy degree, crop science degree, that's what I had to do because I think I needed to have that piece of paper, I guess. No one has ever asked me where my degree's from when I was doing crop consulting, no one asked me. No one cares, they just care you have one. I don't even know if they care that I have one. <laughs> honestly, I mean, because I, I, I honestly think I would rather I honestly, I would rather have a kid that's worked three summers with a crop consultant that knows what he's doing, that has worked on my farm. I wouldn't care if he's going to college or not. I think it's just like going to a trade school or going to the Navy or doing something. You're doing a profession that is, no one's going to ever ask you about what that paper is doing. I I don't even know where that paper's at. So I look at it when, like if my son goes to trade school and stuff like that, he's learning what he wants to do. And I think guys that are out in the field for five months out of the summer and they do a good job and they're learning, I think they're so much more ahead than book learning. I mean, I I, I understand the part of reading and understanding what a weed is and everything like that and how to identify things, but you still have got to go out and do the work and understand what you're doing and so uh, this all leads up to i think when we first first started doing no-till um there were you know you had no-till on the plains um, a college friend of mine was the president i think for ccta scott raven camp okay he was so so i have a connection to st francis because where my grandparents were at my uncle and so I started going up there, and with Scott's connection, you know, I didn't know any of these guys, who they were, what they are doing, anything like that. Once we started doing no-till, I just went up there, and I'd go over to no-till on the Plains, do, do no-till on the Plains and go up to Burlington. Then, uh, then at first I started thinking, <clears throat> yeah, no-till on the Plains, at that time, was geared more towards eastern Kansas. Right. Eastern, you know, the I-States, Missouri all that stuff, more moisture. Um, Burlington, it's just had a different vibe, like you said. I mean, it, it's just, it's guys. It sucks to farm in western it is. Kansas and eastern Colorado. It is, you could just relate, and, and then I, I would stay up at my grandmother's house and drive down to Burlington, go down there, listen, come back, and, you know, but i make connections up there and stuff like that. And so, you know, and saying this about learning, I can go to these meetings and sit and listen to a guy and learn and write down things and figure out what can we change on operation to make this work or do like that and that to me is no different than what schooling is you're just it's just a different form i mean it's a different form of classroom learning i mean i i try to go to as many
1: of them as i can every year because that's education i never went to college i'm still kind of kind of below the education curve yeah. I think sometimes so I try to go get as much knowledge as I can and and it's networking a lot of it is is networking and be able to talk to other producers and you know some I, I, I wrote down college for networking mm-hmm. while you're while you were talking mm-hmm. because I think that's if you go to college just for the piece of paper I yep. think you missed the point yep. and I definitely know that I missed out on a lot of networking opportunities by joining the Navy and not going to college, but I think college, it's not just about trying to get a foundation for what you think you want to do in life, but it's meeting other people that are going to help you along the way, and we're fortunate where we are here, we've got so many great ag conferences like, you know, mm-hmm. CCTAs, High Plains, No-Till, No-Till on the Plains, Soil Health U, and bottom line down at Lakin. I mean, we've got four awesome conferences. And even are- no,
0: No-Till Texas, I've come in that one and that, those guys are good as well. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and not to interrupt, but I guess, you know, and I think that networking is the key because so when Scott was out there, I got to know Scott and Wade and three or four different guys on the board that are out there. And then all of a sudden, you can visit with those guys. Mm-hmm. And they come out there, and then after 15 or 16 years, you see all the same faces, and you say hi to them, visit, and stuff like that. What led me into No Tell in the Plains, um, Scott went from being the president of CCTA to being a board member on No Till in Plains. And he, he had told me, he's like, we need to get some western Kansas guys, we need to get some western, we need Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas guys, Oklahoma to be on that, just to get a little bit of shift, and so I thought, well, yeah, I'll, I'll try it, and so when they asked me to be on No Tell and Plains, board member, I, I, was, I was up for it, got on there, and uh, I got on the same time, uh, I guess I got on a year right before Jimmy Emmons did, I got to meet Jimmy, um, and no better guy that, that is an advocate for soil health, for farming, for ranching, for just overall great
1: guy. I, I mean, Jimmy is wonderful. The reason he hasn't been on this podcast in the last three years is we just haven't managed <laughs> to <laughs> make a freaking connection He's too, he's too busy.
0: He, I've, I know. I'm just going gonna, gonna to have to do this. I'm going to have to take that camera. And, and go wherever he's at. Yes. Because he, he's, been, he's probably not home, but, but probably who you need to talk to as much as Jimmy is Ginger and Carson with Just what they're doing the because, ginger. well, no, I mean, because they do, they do the work for the farm and stuff, then when Jimmy's home, <laughs> then I think they tell him what to do. <laughs> but, but so, but I guess I, I got on that board and then that opened up so many different avenues when you start as the board member trying to get to build a conference and stuff like that and then learn about soil health and everything, but then you get to meet a David Brandt. You get to meet um, a Jimmy Emmons, You get to meet the, Greg Judy. These guys that are all around here, and then all of a sudden, you're just sitting there, like, just absorbing it, you know? And then you get asked to come and talk or something like that, like at Burlington this last year with Mark and Willard and I. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I tell the story. I, I don't know if I told, told it or not out there at Burlington. But so when, I'm, when I was on no the planes uh, before, I can go into that rabbit hole of three things, 19 to 20. But um, Jimmy, Ryan Spear, and Michael Thompson. Okay. And so that, those guys are what I'd call my, my guys. My, the guys that I can text, call, or whatever, and that's the relationship that I've built. Meeting Jimmy and Ryan, we're both on no-till in the plains. And Ryan has a background of... Um, Crop consulting also, him and I just got along. He was no tall, plain board uh, board member for. Uh, he still is last. This I think is last year, but he's been on there for, God, for ten to fifteen years. Um, him and Josh Lloyd um, were really are really good friends and advocates for all the soil health. But the but Jimmy, Michael, and, and uh, Ryan, we just get like you know just have a text and you know you have your ups and downs. but that's your connections and, and but that's why I always say is two hours away. I can talk to Michael or Ryan or Jimmy and we're all within two hours of this location.
1: Close enough that you're familiar, yeah. far enough away that you don't have to worry about competition or community.
0: Yeah, and, I, and, I, like, and that's the whole thing is, but I can run an idea past Jimmy and say, hey, what do you think? Will this work? Well, it will work down here. Michael may say, yeah, it won't work up here because it's too cool or whatever, you know, and so I'm right in the middle. Well, what may work for Ryan Spear, you know, doing a double crop Milo after wheat, yeah, they're going to get rain in Wichita. Yeah. Probably more, not this year, but nine times out of 10, they are, and so, and then my, my connection with Michael is, uh, <laughs> we were out at Burlington and I, 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 I don't remember the year, but he was still teaching. Uh, kindergarten. So it would have been, yeah, it would have been a while ago. 10, yeah. Oh, at least 10, 12 years ago. I'm going to say. I can't, I, we were trying to figure that out the other day and I think it has to be back in 2010 or 11, maybe 12. And uh, there's like 15, 20 minute break in between sessions. And I see this tall guy sitting on the front row and, and I just went over there and said, I just asked him, I was like, are we going to listen to, who I got you the camera who it was. And so I just said, where are you from? And, he told me Norton and Almina area, and I was like, okay. So I said, I've been out here, and I was my first year I've been out here. And so we just started a conversation. And he's like, well, yeah, I went to Hayes' school, and I'm like, so then there's a connection. Right. And so then we sat there for 15, 20 minutes before the speaker talked, and it's just like, yeah, I've met this, I mean, it's, it's this guy's on the same path, same idea path as what my I brother am. brother from another mother. Exactly, exactly, and so then all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're texting each other, calling each other, visiting about things, and then all of a sudden you go to a meeting, there he is, so I'll just go, who is it, you know, and, and now it's just like, and that's why I, I looked at like CCTA, and there's a list of all the speakers, had all pictures of the speakers, and I'm like looking at it going, I know 90% of them, but <laughs> there, there's like 60% of those guys that are all good friends, yeah. great friends, and so, I'm, it's the connections that you make. I'm
1: <laughs> laughing because when I got the agenda for High Plains No Till in Burlington, I'm looking through like, I know that guy. Yeah. Know that guy. I 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 know that guy. Know that guy. Like, half of them I'd have on the podcast already.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. And so it, and it, so you have that connection. And, and that's, and that, I can still remember, I can't remember the year. I think it was 2017. Uh, I'd listened, watched Greg Judy on some videos, or I think he was on like, um, I think he was on somebody else's podcast, or um, I can't remember who he was watching. Um, but I thought, yeah, hey, this guy's doing pretty neat. And so we we're trying to get speakers and stuff. And so I just said, well, why don't we get Greg Judy? Try that. They're like, yeah, ask him if you want to. And so I just emailed him out of the blue, hey, no till on the plains. We're wanting to see about, you know, doing grazing. We want to get some cattle on them in there. And by the end of the day, there's like four guys that I was, I knew, but I didn't know. And we're, I'm just texting them and like, okay, yep, Greg Judy's coming. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, Russell Hedrick's coming. Because <laughs> uh, of my connection with Michael and Russell. And so, and then I think we had uh, Grant Sims from uh, Australia. And so, by the end of that day, we had like three or four speakers just from guys that I'd made connections from from other conferences, like from uh, from Grant. Uh, from Australia, meeting him out at you know, No Till on the Plains, but then out at Burlington when there's a blizzard, and then we just start visiting, and all of a sudden, a bunch of Aussies and Western Kansas guys sitting around in a room like this, just BSing for five hours, drinking beer, and having a good time. And so you learn about things in Australia and Western Kansas and Western Nebraska, and everybody listens and absorbs, and you have a good time. And that's why I guess I look at, you know, the soil health part for me now is where do we learn? What are we learning? Learning together with other guys. Yeah. And having that networking connection, but also when you're going to these meetings, you're you're getting ideas from other guys of what what's working. And some that, you know, the one thing for me is trying to figure out what you know, if you can put out less inputs, can you put what do you put on your seed? Right. I mean. Yeah, like Nick's
1: next thing about you know uh seed treatments right i thought that was super interesting even though
0: i'm never going to plant anything right and and, and then what seed treatments do you do do you just put something on or do you put do you do a johnson sioux and build that up and do like what jade's doing jay young's doing and do stuff where you know you've got a year into it or do you just go buy it in a jug and then see what happens you know and and put it on and on your seed as you plant and just let biology take over, you know. Those things. We're still new here. <laughs> we're, we're all still learning. <laughs> and so, the, so that's where. And, and like I was telling you earlier, there's some things I'm, I feel like I'm really naive about, and that's one is trying. I, I still. I went to three out of four conferences one year uh, following when Johnson when Johnson Sue was doing that. Uh, they were talking about that. They were at No Tell Plains, Burlington, and No Tell Texas, and I went and listened to him all three times and I still think when I came back from Amarillo that day I was just like I don't know if I still have this concept of <laughs> putting this stuff in and letting it dry or letting it ferment and everything like that and then use that to treat my seed and, and how's this going to work? <laughs> yeah. What's this supposed to do? <laughs> and, and I got to wait a year to do it, you know, and so, you know, it's things like that that it, it tests you but also I think I... Um, try to figure out: Is it going to work as well? And then, if it works, why did it work? And then, can we improve on it? But those are all things that <laughs> try to figure out. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, hey, that's uh, that's probably a good place to wrap up. So, sure. people want to find you. How can they get a hold of you, Lance?
0: Uh, well, I'm, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook anymore. When all the 2020 stuff happened with COVID and the election, I. I figured instead of arguing with people, I just got off That's of the internet. A smarter um, choice than I made. <laughs> well, I, I think it all depends on, on what you wanna do. Um, I, I probably spent more time getting pissed off about things and than I really needed to, and then arguing, and then just saying. When, I think the main thing was with COVID, when I started arguing with fellow, with friends that I looked up to, and I didn't see it the same way as what they did on COVID. I thought I, I still want to be friends. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I don't want to lose this relationship. I still want to be. We can agree to disagree.
1: <laughs> I've never unfriended somebody over what they said <laughs> on social media, but I might have put somebody on mute for 30 days.
0: <laughs> so, to find to find me, I, I mean, my my wife's on Facebook. Uh, my kids kids have a uh, on Facebook. They have Whirlwind Farms um that's where they sell some of their product um my daughter she's this last year she sold a bunch of repurposed like feed bags and stuff like that so she's got stuff on there you said whirl whirlwind yep whirlwind farms and uh so yeah and then um yeah my it's not uh it's not too hard to find me around i think if i mean just uh Go to High Plains No
1: Till or No Till on the Planes. Well,
0: I think if you went to yeah, 'cause I'm not since I'm not on either one of those boards now, or I'm not on No Till and Plains board anymore, but um, but uh, my my email address if you want that is just Lance Lancefeichert at Yahoo com. Great. And so yeah, that's that's by easy. I think that's how you I think found me or like, uh, I don't know. I like, think you emailed me or however it was. Or you probably yeah, had it. So yeah, so it's pretty easy. But I mean, it's yeah. I appreciate the. I appreciate it, and right. hopefully it'll be a. That'll be a good episode. It's yeah, a lot of fun. Hope so. appreciate it. We bet you, man. Thank you. Oh.